And so uh, to that end, if you would please, let's open our Bibles uh, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And uh, this morning's message is on the first commandment. But just for the sake of context, we'll go ahead and we'll read the uh, law in its entirety. So Exodus chapter 20. And so we'll read verses uh, 1 through 17. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, you uh, speak to us through your word, through your law. And we ask, O Lord, that you would reveal unto us your holiness, your righteousness, the perfection of your being. And in so doing, O Lord, we would see how far we fall short, that we would look to the mirror of the law that it would reveal unto us not only who you are, but who we are not, but ultimately, O Lord, who you have called us to be in Christ. And therefore, we pray, O Lord, that in Christ, you would pour out your grace upon us, that uh, you would use the law to conform us more and more to the image of your Son by the grace that you give unto us in Christ through your Spirit. Bless the preaching of your word. Give unto us all ears to hear, eyes to see. And we pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? A statement perhaps that all of us, both young and old, are familiar with. It's a question, of course, that was made famous in the 19th century collection of fairy tales written by the Grimm brothers or the Brothers Grimm, and we more popularly perhaps know it these days uh, from Disney's Snow White and, of course, the Seven Dwarves. As, uh, As common as the line is, we probably sooner associate that particular statement with the children's cartoon 
than with our own proclivities to idolatry. But if you think about it, I think that that particular phrase, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all, reflects our heart's skill and inclination to turn everything and anything that we see into an idol. As Calvin once said, the human soul is curved in on itself. And he says, we are a perpetual factory of idols. And so I I think it should come as no surprise to us that the Ten Commandments straight away uh, confronts us with one of the most important truths that we can grasp uh, in our lives as Christians, which is the importance of making God uh, the sole object of our life's worship and of our heart's affections. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to reflect upon the nature of God's law for us here in this first commandment, and that we want to seek to understand this commandment within its original setting. What, what would the Israelites have heard? What would they have understood as they heard those words, you shall have no other gods before me? But then secondly, what we want to do is we reflect upon this first of the commandments is we want to ask not how can I go and be obedient to this commandment first and foremost, but rather first and foremost, how does this commandment connect to Christ? That is one of the most important things that we can do as we're reflecting and thinking upon the law. Not us first, but rather Christ first, as he is the one who in the flesh embodies the very existence of the law, the very holiness of the law, the very being and character of God. But not only does Christ embody the law in the flesh, but Christ is also the one who is perfectly obedient to the law on our behalf. So we want to give thought, secondly, as to how does the law first and foremost connect to Christ? And then third and finally, we want to ask the question, in the light of our redemption in Christ and how he has called us into the light, how then do we think and connect to this first of the commandments? So let's give uh, thought to the original context of this first commandment as we read it here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, when the law says, you shall have no other gods before me, as God makes this demand upon his people. Well, I think that when we give thought to it within its original setting, I think we can appreciate its immediate significance in that it makes complete sense given the prologue to the law that appears in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You know, think about it. If God had delivered the Israelites from Egypt and all of the Egyptian gods had proven essentially to be false gods, God was sovereign over all the so-called deities of Egypt, and God alone was the one who delivered them out of Egypt, then it was to God alone that the Israelites owed their faithfulness. It was to God alone that the Israelites owed their worship. It was to God alone that the Israelites owed their love and their affection. When God brought them out of Egypt, he demonstrated to them concretely 
that he was sovereign over the other so-called deities. In Exodus 12, verse 12, we read, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. And we see this in the various plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. I won't go and rehearse all of them, but in the first plague, where he turned water into blood, that was a judgment upon the god of the Nile that the Egyptians worshipped. When Moses, in a sense, put his staff into the water of the Nile and he turns the water into blood by the power of God, it was as if he had thrust a dagger into the very heart of the god of the Nile, saying, Yahweh is sovereign over the creation, not the so-called God of the Nile. And he turns the Nile into blood. The Egyptians worshipped Heket, Heket, the frog goddess. And so God told them, if it is frogs that you worship, then it is frogs that you shall have. And he litters the land full of frogs. Litters the land full of frogs. God saying, no, this is no God. I am sovereign over all your so-called deities. In the fifth plague, he visited a plague upon all of their livestock. And why was this one of the plagues that he delivered upon them? Because the Egyptians worshipped Hathor, the sky goddess, depicted as a cow. Seems a bit counterintuitive, don't you think? You would think it would be a winged creature that would be a sky goddess. No, it's a flying cow, apparently. And yet God says, no, I'm going to bring judgment upon all of the livestock of your land to show you that these cattle are not gods, let alone a god of the sky. These are all mere creatures, and I will judge them all. In the ninth plague, God visited darkness upon the land which was a judgment upon the Egyptians, but also showed them that you, O Egyptians, you worship Ra, the sun god. And I will demonstrate to you that Ra is not sovereign over Egypt, let alone over the creation, but that I am sovereign over the creation, and I will blanket you in darkness. So the judgment of God against the Egyptians was a declaration that he alone was the one true God and that God alone had delivered Israel from Egypt. And so it's for these reasons that God expects, yea, even demands, and he tells the Israelites, you shall have no other gods before me because there are no other gods. I am the one true living God. And so in numerous places throughout the Old Testament, God tells the Israelites they are to worship him and him alone. In Isaiah chapter 45, for example, in verse 6, from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me, I am the Lord and there is no other, says God to Israel. In Isaiah 45, again, verse 21, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And so Israel was therefore to have no other gods because Yahweh was the only true God. He was the one who alone delivered them from their captivity in Egypt. 
But at the same time, we should recognize that this first commandment exists not only to talk and to reveal about who God is, but also to remind Israel as to what is God had done for them. Remember that God had redeemed them from Israel, or redeemed Israel from Egypt, from the house of bondage. They were his bride. This is the way that the Old Testament characterizes God's relationship to Israel. This appears in numerous places in the scriptures, but perhaps where it is writ large across the narrative of scriptures in the prophet Hosea, where God tells the prophet Hosea, I want you to go and marry an adulterous woman. And this relationship that Hosea the prophet had to this adulterous woman was supposed to be a living parable, if you will, of God's relationship to Israel. The prophet was God. The adulterous woman was Israel, his bride. And in Hosea 2.2, we read, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. In other words, this was supposed to be a constant reminder, you, O Israel, are my bride. I am your groom. You're supposed to be faithful to me. You know, I've, I've had the opportunity, as I'm sure all of us have uh, throughout our lives, to either be married or to observe a wedding ceremony, whether in person to attend it or perhaps to see it depicted uh, in, on, on the screen, whether for television or in the movies. And you always hear that line or something to this effect that says that when you profess your love for your spouse to be that you are to forsake all others. You're to be faithful to the spouse to whom you make these vows. It's not supposed to be an open-ended arrangement where you marry your spouse, but yet you continue to uh, engage with other, others in other relationships. And so I think that there's something of the special nature of God's marital bond, if you will. We can put it more specifically, his covenantal bond to his people Israel that is captured here in the language of this commandment. No other nation on the face of the earth enjoyed this kind of relationship that God had with his people. No other relationship on the face of the earth. No one was in covenant with God except for Israel. No other nation had the privilege of having God camped in their midst, pitching his tent in the midst of the people so that they could fellowship with him, uh, so that they could worship him. And so this is why God says, you shall have no other gods before me. As often as we hear in marriage vows that when another person marries another, he or she is supposed to forsake all others, we can say that the exclusivity of God's claim upon Israel, his bride, gets captured in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and following, that passage famously known as the Shema, which is the Hebrew word that uh, begins that verse, which says, Here, that's what Shema means, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. So here, this is what the first commandment enjoined upon the people of Israel. That they were supposed to be exclusively devoted to God in everything. In their worship, in their lives. And they were to have no other gods before them. Because God alone is the one true God. And because God alone is their one groom, their faithful husband. So that's the command in its original context. So what are the connections of this first commandment to Christ? Because remember, as I said, we don't want to do what so often many people do is they read the law. And uh, if you're familiar with football, one of my least favorite plays in all of football is the run up the middle. I just don't like it. Now, some teams execute it well. They just plow up the middle and, uh, and they, they, they can move the defensive line and they, can, and they can make yardage. But to me, it's the most unimaginative play in all of football. What are we going to do? Let's just run it straight at them. You know, when I was a kid, I can remember watching the, uh, uh, the now the, the, the Washington Commanders, <laughs> uh, John Riggins. That is a man who could move the defensive line single-handedly, it seems. He could just move the whole pile. But what we do is we think we can make a run up the middle on the law. We think that we can move the defensive line of God's holiness all on our own. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. And we grab ourselves by our moral bootstraps and we say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a run straight at the law, right up the middle. And that ultimately is the fool's errand. This is why we need to consider the connections of the first commandment to Christ before we give thought to ourselves. And I think that whenever we investigate the law of God, we have to recognize that it reveals the character of God and who is it that chiefly reveals the character of God but Jesus We see this in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, when it says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The supreme revelation of God does not appear in the law, but in Jesus Christ. And so this is why we have to consider these connections first to Christ before we think about the law as it relates to us in the Christian life. And where we see the chief revelation of God in Christ, in other words, where we can see, I think, the, 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 the most definitive revelation of the first commandment is in Jesus. John, in the opening words of his gospel, makes this clear. John chapter 1, verses 1 and following, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, the Word of God, reveals Yahweh, 
the God of the Old Testament. And so the command to have no other gods before Yahweh, I think, is more fully comprehended in that we are to have no other gods before our triune Lord who is supremely revealed in Jesus Christ. And I think we can see the themes of redemption and the exclusivity of the deity of our triune Lord irrefragably combined with Christ's famous but perhaps often missed statement when Philip said, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say in John fourteen six Or in John chapter 14, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. But more specifically, he gets down to the brass tacks and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. So we have to recognize that we owe our allegiance and worship to our triune Lord, who is supremely revealed in Jesus. For just as God declared his supremacy over all of the other pretended deities in Egypt, so too the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the very incarnation of the one true living God, which is why Paul says in Romans 9, 5, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Not only was Israel supposed to worship God alone because she was his wife, but so too we must remember that Jesus Christ is our husband. We are his bride. And so therefore we owe him our fidelity, our faith, our loyalty, the exclusivity of our hearts and of our worship and of our affections. When Christ delivers us out of the kingdom of darkness and places us in the kingdom of light... He unites us to himself through the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. He gives unto us the gift of faith. And with this new life, he calls us to worship the triune God through the Spirit, through Christ. And this is how we approach the first commandment. Which brings us to our third and final point, which is the connection to us. Now, we might be under the impression that unlike Israel, we don't have a problem with idolatry. At least I think that that's perhaps a common thought, at least within the broader church. And I think it's because so often, so much of the idolatry that we see in the Old Testament is of a certain kind. You know, we see people, uh, as it's described by the prophets, or as we see later on described in the law, uh, where they, they form these idols, uh, and then after they've formed them, uh, whether they make them from wood or from gold or from silver, then they bow down and worship them. Now, to be clear, in other parts of the world, this undoubtedly goes on, unquestionably so. I can remember one of the saddest things that I've you know, witnessed in my life is when I was traveling in China, somebody took me and my wife, uh, to, a, uh, to a temple. And we watched people bow down to blocks of wood, to things of gold and silver, and to worship them as if they were alive. 
And there's a certain extent to which we see some of this still to, you know, to this day And that I don't know if you've ever been in certain types of restaurants, maybe a Chinese restaurant. I remember walking into one Chinese restaurant and I kind of chuckled at it. And at the same time, I thought this is really sad and pathetic that there was a little Buddha statue. And in front of the Buddha statue, there was a little table. And in front of the Buddha statue, there was a moldy donut because they had given the Buddha statue some food. I wanted to say, you got a moldy donut there. That's really disgusting. That's probably not the first thing that you should show your guests as they're coming to eat food. Look, we have mold growing here. They were feeding the deity. They were worshiping a block of, of, of clay. And so we think, well, we certainly do. We don't do that. We don't do that. Paul says that That's a common thing that can happen. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So people undoubtedly still engage in that type of idolatry. It just may not be that prevalent in our part of the world. But what we have to recognize is that the form of idolatry that exists in our part of the world, we can say, is sophisticated. And it may not be as evident to us because so many people engage in it and it has the camouflage of acceptability. It has the camouflage of widespread practice so that if we engage in certain forms of idolatry, we may not even realize that we are engaging in idolatry. For example, listen to how the larger catechism describes idolatry when it says this, um, I'm sorry, when it talks about um, how it is that we have to keep the law, it says in question 114, can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfect? No, it answers. Even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience, yet so that with earnest purpose they begin to live, not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. Question 115, why then will God have the Ten Commandments preached so strictly since in this life no one can keep them? First, that all our life long we may learn more and more to know more of our sinful nature and so become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, secondly, that we may constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit to be renewed more and more after the image of God till after this life we arrive at the goal of perfection. So in other words, we have to recognize that our forms of idolatry are much more sophisticated, but this is why all the more we need the law, we need the preaching of the law, we need the mirror of the law so that we can look into it and say, oh Lord, can you uncover for me by the power of your word and the spirit, the nature of the idolatry that I have in my life, whatever it may be, however sophisticated it may be. There's a sense in which if we ask of the law of God as our mirror rather than the mirrors of our own making, mirror, mirror on the wall or mirror, mirror of the law, reveal unto us where my idols or where our idols lie. In this vein, 
The Heidelberg Catechism says this in question 95, what is idolatry? Listen to this broad definition and see how much it might sweep up in our lives as being potential forms of idolatry. It says, what is idolatry? Question 95. It is instead of the one true God who's revealed himself in his word or along with the same to conceive or have something else on which to place our trust. With that kind of a definition, all of a sudden it shows us that if there's anything else in this world that we place our trust in, that we should instead be placing our trust in God, that can be an idol. Our strength can be an idol. Habakkuk 111, then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their God. How many of us think that our well-being rests upon ourselves and our own strength. Our possessions can be a God. Job 31, 24, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence. How many of us, you know, establish and place our well-being based upon our possessions? Wealth can be a God. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One of the things that used to, to, I, find, I used to find disconcerting as a pastor is that uh, I, would, I, I would talk to somebody who was getting ready to be transferred uh, to you know, another part of the country because of their job, and like, oh, yeah, we really hate to leave the church. And, yeah, we're so sad to see you go. And, uh, you know, where are you being transferred to? Oh, being transferred to, you know, fill in the blank. And then I'd say, well, you know, what church are you going to go to? Well, that's going to be one of the challenges. There really aren't any good churches in the area. And I'd, I'd, I'd pose the question, well, do you think maybe, maybe you shouldn't take the transfer? Would you want really to voluntarily move your family into a spiritual desert? where there's no spiritual sustenance for you? The implicit question here that we should ask ourselves in that kind of a scenario is, is, am I putting my wealth, am I putting my job over my sole exclusive commitment to God? Have I turned my job into an idol? Food can be a God. Some people might say, no, no, don't go there. (laughs) We all like food, don't we? It's like uh, I've had a, a medical procedure that went awry this week. Uh, that's why if some of you may notice I'm wearing a boot. Uh, and uh, I've had to adjust my diet to a mo- mostly a brat diet. No fun. And uh, one of the things I cannot have, which is, this is my morning coffee, orange juice. I love orange juice. I'm a connoisseur of processed orange juice. Love it. Uh, you know, uh, you know, and if I don't have my orange juice, bad things happen. Uh, I can't have orange juice while I'm on the medication. I, I, I don't want to say that orange juice has become my God. <laughs> I hope not. But Paul says this. He says in Philippians 3.19, their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Some people turn food into a God. They're always thinking about the next meal, stuffing themselves. 
family can be a God. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38 Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What all of these different passages do is my desire is not to step on our toes. Maybe that's God's intention. But rather just to show us that idolatry is not just simply bowing down to a block of stone or wood. But idolatry can come in many different forms. And we can turn quite literally anything in this world into an idol. And so this is why we have to cry out to Christ to say, purge my heart of my idols. Help me, O Lord, to place my trust solely in you. Help me, O Lord, that I would not cling tightly to the things of this world so much so that I put my trust more in them than I do in you. Christ, you were perfectly faithful so that when Satan tempted you with idolatry, you said no. Give me that faithfulness. Give me your faithfulness. So that I would hold nothing in this world with a tight fist, but rather with the open hand saying, Oh Lord, it all belongs to you. It is yours to give. It is yours to take. May I always look and trust to you so that you are the sole object of my faith. You are the sole object of my trust. You are the sole object of my love and of my affections. So beloved in Christ, May we think about these things and meditate upon these things as we reflect upon the first commandment. And may we see the depths to which its demands impress upon us the need for holiness and the need for the worship, the sole worship of God. And may we, in the light of how much we fall short, may we flee to Christ, the only one who has kept the law, And pray that he would make us faithful so that we would be faithful when it comes to the first commandment. And that we would love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. So that the idols idols of this world would have no attraction for us. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 94, what does God require in the first commandment? That as much as I love my soul's salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints or other creatures. That I rightly acknowledge the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with my whole heart, so that I leave and forsake all creatures rather than do even the least thing against his will. May it be said of us, And may it be said of us because of Christ in us that we would be faithful and we would worship the Lord and the Lord only. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have delivered us from our idols. And we pray, O Lord, that you would enable us not to desire to return to them. So often, O Lord, we are drawn astray by the shiny things of this world. We are drawn astray, O Lord, 
by thinking that the stability in our life rests upon others rather than you. We are drawn astray, O Lord, and bow down to idols of our own making, whether it be our foods, whether it be our strength, whether it be our wealth. We are curved in on ourselves, O Lord, and so we pray that you would bend us to your will by your grace, and that you would cause us to be so enamored and so in love with you, O Lord, that nothing else in this world would displace you from our hearts. Give us the faithfulness of Christ. May we look to him as the one who has perfectly fulfilled the law so that we know that we do not fulfill the law in our own strength, but only through him who strengthens us by the outpouring of your spirit. Make us faithful, we pray. Purge our hearts from, our, from all of the idols of our own making, that we would worship you and worship you only, that we would be a faithful bride to Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.